Spring Grace Gospel Church. This morning I'm going to read the scriptures myself for the sake of time. Uh, you might want to pray. Uh, this has the potential to be uh, a long message, and I'm not really happy with that. So if you, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, standing while we read God's Word, we'll stand for God's Word, and you're welcome to sit for mine when we're done. The last slide you'll see... Uh, the font is red. We will read that together if you don't mind. So let's begin. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Keep your behavior excellent amongst, among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Together now. Shall we pay tax or shall we not pay? Jesus said, bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. He said, whose image, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Father, we ask that during this time of continued worship, worship that occurs through the proclamation and the hearing of your word, that the Holy Spirit might be our teacher. Oh, dear God, I pray that no one may see me, but may they see your Son exalted and lifted high. Dear God, it is my prayer that no one hears me. May they hear instead the Holy Spirit speaking to their heart and to their mind. Impress upon all of us the truths of your word. Convict us where we fall short. Encourage us then and build us up through your word, build us up in our most holy faith for your glory and your name's sake. Amen. We're continuing, you may be seated. We're continuing this morning in our series on thinking biblically about modern issues facing the believer and the church. This morning we're going to talk about government, human government, governing authorities. We just don't want to talk about government 
by itself, but we are going to look at the relationship of the Christian to human government. The first half of the message will look more at government, and then the last half will show how the Christian is to relate to government. So we want to think this morning biblically about the Christian and the Christian's relationship to government. We're going to look at it under three main headings. The origin and purpose of government, the authority of government, and then the more practical part, the Christian's response to government. So let's begin by looking at the origin and purpose of government. Human government originated with God after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9 and chapter 10, we read this. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was his command, the same command he had given to Adam and Eve. He continues with that same command, that same plan, that same sovereign purpose in the life of the, his creature created in his image, man, mankind. So this is the beginning. Fill the earth. And we read in chapter 10 of Genesis, and this is a genealogy. This is the descendants of the sons of Noah, and the three sons are named Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these three, we're going to see sons were born to them. The them are the three sons of Noah. Sons were born to them after the flood. From these, from these sons of Noah's three sons, the peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, into their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations, in their nations. And from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Everything in blue all refer to the same thing. The sons, not Noah's immediate sons, but his grandsons, his great-grandsons, and on and on and on. These sons, these descendants were the people's and the nations. Human government originated with God. He gave that command to fill the earth in Genesis 9-1, and then we see how that command was get carried out. Now, we know man didn't want to do it. They decided, let's stay together, erect a great tower to the heavens, and make a name for ourselves. But God confused their language, and now they were scattered. So just like man... From the fall in Genesis 3 to you and I nowadays, we resist the will and instruction and the commands of God. God needed to directly intervene to bring about the fulfillment of his command. It's a form of chastisement, the chastising rod that we read about in the New Testament for the, the believer in Christ who is engaging in ongoing sin. We find out not only did human government originate with God, but all current governments are from God. Even our governments today, whether it be a good government or whether it be a government that we consider to be evil. Paul writes in Romans, be in subjection to the governing authorities. Authorities, he's talking about the governing authorities here. Now you need to understand something. When Paul wrote this, 
Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, was none other than Nero, who persecuted Christians. And yet Paul, in the face of an emperor who despised Christians and put Christians to death, used Christians for sport, tortured Christians, Paul says, be in subjection to governing authorities. He doesn't say be in subjection to governing authorities except Nero. He says be in subjection to governing authorities. There's no exception there. For those, those authorities, that's what the those is referring to, authorities, which exist are established by God. Not even, not, not only the, originate, the origination of human government, as we saw in Genesis, but even in Paul's day, thousands and thousands of years later, and even in our day, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this, all governing authorities which exist are established by God. God is the one who set them in place, is the way you can think about that word established. He placed them there. God raises up governments, and we know from Scripture he tears them down. God is sovereign over every form of human authority. These governments that we have today, whether we live in a great country like this one, or we live in some other country, or whoever, as our brother made reference earlier, is in the White House, or whatever the policies are, God has established those governments. We're going to see that they are servants of God. You know, everything serves God. Satan is a servant of God. He serves God even in the book of Job. When he strikes Job, he is bringing about God's glory in doing that, and he's also bringing about Job's good. In his evil, that's what he does. Because Job is blessed twice as much at the end as he was before. God uses even evil governments to bring himself glory. The scripture says, the wrath of man, even that shall praise the Lord. So these governments that God establishes are ultimately to bring him the greatest glory possible. And even an evil government for our good. I mean, we, we might think of the People's Republic of China. I went, to, I went to seminary with a student who happened to escape that country without them knowing about it. He went to seminary, and he was going to go back to that country. There, the church in that country, the true Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church is largely an underground church. It is strong. It is growing because of the persecution of that government. God is using that persecution to grow that church. That not only in numbers, not only the breadth of the church, but the depth of their, their devotion and commitment to the Lord. God uses even atheistic, communistic, evil governments like the People's Republic of China to bring himself glory and to build his church, and to build each committed, devoted believer. Deepen their faith. Make them more like Christ. 
What some of those Christians are going to through today are exactly what the Christians were going to through when Paul wrote to Rome and when Peter wrote his first epistle. Nero was also on the throne at the time that Peter wrote. All governments, even today, come from God. One of them didn't do an end run about, around God's sovereign plan. One of them didn't overpower God and come into existence without his sovereign approval. The purpose of government is to serve God. Now, not every government serves God. Ultimately, they do. They will bring him glory. It may not be their intent to serve him. It may be an evil government, but the stated purpose in Scripture of government is to serve God. Paul writes in Romans 13, be in subjection to the governing authorities, for it is a minister of God, for rulers are servants of God. Now, that word minister and servants, in the original Greek language that Paul wrote, it's the same word. Within the context of a local church, we would call those servants deacons. They are deacons. They serve. They wait on tables is really what the ancient Greco-Roman deacon did in the secular world. He was a servant who brought food to the table and cleared things away from the table. Here, government is a servant of God, a minister of God. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Yes, they're to serve us as their constituents, as citizens of a country, but ultimately, they are to serve God, and in serving God, they should be serving us. Now, not, not every government fulfills that goal as their intent and stated purpose, just as believers in Christ don't always walk in holiness. We still sin. Governments sin and rebel against the Lord as well. The purpose of government is also to protect. Here, implicitly, we, we see that protection is involved. Paul writes, do what is good and you will have praise from the same, from the governing authorities. That's what the same are in the context. For it is a minister of God to you. For what purpose? For good. That's what government is supposed to be towards its citizens. It should be for our good. And they, the government doesn't get to define what is good. God defines what is good in his word. So it's not the government saying, well, I think this is good. No, it's what does God say is good. That's how the government should be serving its people, protecting its people. Protection certainly would come under the concept of good. It shouldn't be persecuting its people for living righteously. The purpose of government is also to punish. Going on in Romans 13, in the next verse, it says, for it is a minister, a servant, that same word deacon. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. For rulers are servants of God. Part of their service is to punish evil. Sadly, in some enlightened modern societies and governments, 
it seems like evil, criminal evil, is tolerated. The criminals are valued more than the citizens that should be protected from the criminals. The punishment of the criminals is too light. In fact, sometimes <laughs> the government itself practices and legislates evil. But the true purpose of government is to serve God, serve its people, be good to its people, protect its people, and to punish evil. And God is the one who defines what evil is, not government. His word, the Bible, defines good and evil. That's our standard. That's where we get our definition and the particulars, the specifics of what constitutes good and what constitutes evil. So, we've seen the origin and the purpose of government. Let's look at the authority of government. We want to look at it under two headings. The source of the authority, which we already have an idea about, and the limits of that authority. This is very important, and given what happened to us over a year period with a shutdown, we want to look at the limits of government. So let's begin with the source of the government's authority. The authority of government comes from where? What is its source? And obviously, governmental authority comes from God. It doesn't come from man. It comes from God. He originated governments, and he grants to them authority. Be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. No authority, no government exists that does not ultimately come from God. God doesn't approve of everything a government does because some governments do evil. Some governments even legislate evil. Some governments turn a blind eye to evil. Some governments don't serve the people. They're self-serving. Some governments don't always do good and protect their people. But governmental authority comes from God. There's no authority except from God. It's, it's clear. There's no arguing with those simple words. God has also ordained all current governments. None of them have caught him by surprise. From eternity past, he has ordained every government that would rule and exist upon the earth. In verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Ordinance, ordain, these are related words. All governments have been ordained by God. They exist because he has ordained it. He desires them to exist, to fulfill his plan. But governmental authority has limits, and we're going to see what those limits are. These limits we'll see that they're implicitly stated. And I'll bring that out. I'll show you how that's so. And then we're going to look at two back-to-back -back chapters in the book of Acts to see it explicitly illustrated what the limits of governmental authority are. So let's see some of these limits that are just explicitly stated. By implicitly, I mean given our understanding of Scripture, given what Scripture clearly teaches throughout, we'll see by the use of certain words, certain things are intended. 
and what the implications of that is. So the limits of governmental authority we can see in uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister to you for good. Notice what word I put in bold three times. Good, good, good. These two verses have as their primary focus good. The government's authority is limited by what is good. Anytime the government goes outside of what God has said is good, the government oversteps its limits. The governments are subject to the same commands and instructions, moral instructions, God's moral law that every man is subject to, every member of the human race. Why? Governments composed of Adam's descendants. Governments composed of men and women created in God's moral image and likeness. The limit of governmental authority is that sphere of goodness. They must never step outside of that sphere into evil. What's outside of that good is evil. The only thing that they should have authority over is that which God would define as good. Their laws, their government, governance should all be focused on what God calls good. Their limit is anything outside of that. Sadly, we know in a number of ways, even basically good relative to other countries, even relative good governments and countries like we have here in the United States, sometimes they go beyond that sphere of good and they go into the realm of evil. They do not have the authority to do that. They are limited by God's word for, to the sphere of goodness. Anytime they go outside of that, they are going against God. They are rebelling against God the same way an individual person does when they engage in sin. Peter says the same thing. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Again, government is limited by what God calls right. This actually is the exact same word that was translated good three times in Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. It has the idea of what is good, what is right, what is morally proper. These are the limits. But let's look at a couple of examples where government tries to go beyond the sphere of goodness, the sphere of what is morally good. They try to go beyond the boundaries, the God-ordained boundaries of their authority. And we're going to see what happens when they start to interfere in areas that they have no authority over, spiritual areas. In Acts chapter 4, the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body headed by the high priest, 
began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? These men are Peter and John. They had been going to the temple to preach the gospel, and there was a man paralyzed by the gate. He had been laid there, and he's on his bed, and he's begging for alms. And Peter looks at him and says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Take up your bed and walk. And he was healed. He took up his bed. The people began to glorify God. And the result of this is, what shall we do with these men, with Peter and John? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle, actually the Greek word is not just a miracle, it's a sign it's a sign there. What they did was a sign testifying to the truth of their message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't just, wow, some sort of magic trick. Wow, that's amazing. No, there was a meaning and a purpose behind it. There is a Greek word for miracle. It's not used here. It's a word for sign. There was a reason for it, a noteworthy sign that would point the people to Jesus, the Messiah, was done. And they had just crucified him, the Jewish leaders. They can't have this. A noteworthy miracle has taken place through them, is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So rather than submit to it, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do they do? But so that it will not spread any further amongst the people, let us warn Peter and John to speak no longer to any man in this name, the name of Jesus. And so they now, after conferring, they summons Peter and John, and they commanded them not to teach, speak, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, to obey you, Rather than to obey God, you be the judge. They were speaking to the religious leaders who exercised also a certain measure of governmental authority under Roman law. They were speaking to these men. They couldn't, these men couldn't say, oh no, it's better that you listen to us than to God. I mean, that would di totally discredit them. Now, our government, we might say this too, or any modern government, and they'll just say, oh, we don't believe in God. But the point is, is that there is a sphere of authority that belongs to God, and there's a sphere of authority that belongs to man. The technical word for that sphere is magisterium. I only mention it because some of you might have heard that and wondered what it is. It's a sphere of authority the magisterium of God or the magisterium of human government. They have a separate sphere of authority. God is over. God encompasses the proper and right use of governmental authority. Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. Now, they weren't just telling him, go out and you make the decision. They already knew, these Jewish leaders already knew what the right answer was. You listen to God and not to man. That's the point of this. You listen to God, not to any man. And that becomes clear because the very next words in verse 20 contradict 
what the Sanhedrin was telling Peter and John to do. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It becomes even clearer in Acts chapter 5 because Peter is also going to give us a principle that we can apply to many areas even beyond speaking about Jesus and teaching the Word of God. The very next chapter, uh, the, all of the apostles now, encouraged by Peter and John, they're all back in the temple now, preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They did exactly what Peter and John said. We cannot stop, and they didn't stop. And so they're all there in chapter 5 again, and they arrested them all, put them in prison, in a public prison, and now they have to figure out what they're going to do with these people who just won't listen, who obey God rather than man. The high priest rose up along with all his associates, and notice their motivation. They were filled with jealousy. They wanted to be the ultimate authority, the ultimate ruler, and not Jesus, not God. They laid their hands on the apostles, and when they brought them, the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But Peter and the apostles answered, and here's the principle, we must obey God rather than man. Anytime government goes outside of that sphere of goodness into evil and they tell its citizens to practice evil, our response is the apostles' response. We must obey God rather than man. And sometimes there's a price to be paid for that. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released him. You know, you might have heard about some of the pastors in Canada. One of them went to the same seminary that I did. He lived in the same apartment complex that Colette and I did. It was a couple years before we got there. I actually met him once at a conference. And he's been placed in prison. He spent like 35 days, the first two weeks, in like solitary. Why? Because his church gathered together uh, and met against the law of the province of Alberta, Canada. And so he was arrested and placed in jail. He was of the conviction, his name is James Coates, that he must gather together. They'd been doing it. They never had a single case of COVID that was traced back to them. But that was the decision he made, and he was willing to pay the price. He has a wife and I believe three children. Peter, the apostles paid a price as well. They flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Brothers and sisters, it may be that uh, emboldened by their recent uh, power grab, governments may again decide uh, to ban uh, corporate worship. At that time, we'll have to make a decision again. What do we do? What do we do? Is it short-term? Is it long-term? Is there any justification? Are they trying to do something for our, at least our physical good? Or is it just to exert control? And we'll be faced with that same decision again 
And what we'll decide as a church, I don't know what we'll decide at that point. Okay, I know what my leanings are, uh, and I'll keep them to myself at this point in time. Hopefully, we'll never have to face that situation again. But it may cost us. It may cost us. We may need to meet publicly, and it costs us, or we might decide to do what the church in China does and meet secretly. After he was released from prison, that's what our brother James Coates did in Canada. They meet secretly. No one knows where they're going to meet. Unfortunately, they don't have visitors. They restrict it to those in fellowship because they don't want the governing authorities to know and then come and break it up and arrest them again. But it may cost us to suffer for Christ. So they went on their way from the Sanhedrin, from the council. The apostles went on their way. And they weren't just licking their wounds. What were they doing? They were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, they bled. I remember the first time after I was saved that I went down the beach. I was a real beach bum before I was saved. And I went down to the beach and preached the gospel open air and drew a crowd of friends and, and, and others who were there. And the most suffering I ever experienced was some guy who I knew, who was a friend. He hawked up the mother of all loogies and let it fly and hit me right in the... I didn't wear glasses then. He was aiming for my eye. It hit me in the cheek and started dripping down. I still remember the look on some of the girls' faces. Ooh! You know, this big thing. But I had a red bandana in my back pocket. I wiped it off and for some reason kept on preaching the gospel. And I remember uh, riding my motorcycle back to where I was staying, and I was just rejoicing. A loogie compared to being flogged. I mean, there's no comparison. But they were rejoicing in that, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And what was the result? And every day in the temple, publicly, publicly, and from house to house, privately, they covered all the bases. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Our Lord Jesus talked about governmental authority, and we'll see both spheres or magisteriums of authority here. The Herodians and the Pharisees come to test Jesus, and they say, shall we pay tax or shall we not pay? Jesus said, bring me a denarius, bring me a coin, just like, you know, a quarter, okay? We, we have coins. Uh, bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, he said, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose picture is on it? We put presidents and other uh, governmental leaders and uh, uh, sometimes other individuals, they'll mint uh, uh, special coins. Whose image and, and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the magisterium, the, the sphere of authority of government. Render to Caesar's. Even the money. Render that to Caesar, but render to God the things that are God's. Whose image is inscribed upon you? Whose image and likeness do you and I bear? God created man, the scripture says, in his own image. Male and female, he created them in Genesis chapter 1. We bear God's image. God owns all of us. We should render to God all that we are. 
That's the point of Jesus' teaching. Sure, you can, the, the believer can submit to human government where human government doesn't go beyond into evil, but we are also to render to God the things that are God's. Are we doing both this morning with our lives? So let's look at the Christian's response to government quickly. We want to look at the obedience to government, and we want to look at the consequences of disobedience. But before we go into this, I don't want to separate this from what we just said about the limits of government. Keep in mind the limits of government, that we must obey God rather than man, because we're going to focus on obedience to government and the consequences of not doing it. But we cannot forget what we just saw in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5 and what our Lord said in Mark 12. Render to God the things that are God's. Keep that in mind. Those are implicit boundaries of what we're about to see here. They're not two separate things. Oh, this or that. No. What we saw as to the limits of government still exists as we go through these verses looking at obedience to government. So let's begin. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. What is he talking about here? He's not just talking about the fact that the people that he wrote to are scattered from their homes likely due to persecution. And they fled persecution, maybe in higher population areas in the Roman Empire, and they've left because of persecution. But there's also a real sense that every believer in Christ, both in Peter's day and today, that we are aliens and strangers on this earth. You know, many, many years ago, I mean, Colette and I have been married over 41 years, and uh, within the first year of our marriage, I got sent on several business trips, three times to the Windy City, Chicago. And I remember checking into a hotel room. Uh, the manager of the facility drove me to the hotel uh, after work. I checked in, I get into my room, and it's got this hideous green paint. I mean, green's my favorite color, but I like a nice forest green, something more natural, um, a manly green. I mean, th this was more like chartreuse. I mean, it burned holes through my eyeballs and out the back of my skull. It was awful. And on the wall, there was this picture. It, it, was, it was just a two-dimensional picture. It was painted uh, sort of like, I don't know a lot about art, but I, the first thing that came to mind was a Picasso. There was this flat face looking sideways, and the eye was exploded out in a circle. The nose was exploded out in a triangle. They weren't attached to the face. The mouth was exploded out in a rectangle. I mean, this was a hideous picture. I took it off the wall and put it under the bed. Then, what would you think of me if I told you I did this next? I got a taxi, called for a taxi, had the taxi take me to a hardware store, bought a gallon of paint and a brush and a new picture. And I was, I was going to be there a whole week, mind you. This is Monday, and, and I was going to be there through Friday. 
What would you think of me if I told you I painted that a nice forest green and I had a nice, real, more realistic painting, a pastoral scene of a meadow with flowers and maybe some birds and clouds, something very nice and soothing. What would you think if I told you I did that? You'd look at me and say, Paul, what, what's wrong with you? This is a hotel room. You're only there for a week. Exactly. That is not, that was not my home. My home was 900 and something miles away in Connecticut. That was not my home. I was only there for a week. I was just passing through. I urge you as aliens and strangers, you and I who know Christ, who've trusted in his salvation that he provided on the cross, we're aliens and strangers in this world. We're just passing through. Our real home is in heaven. Obedience to government is addressed to us as aliens and strangers. Yes, we're citizens of the United States, but what does Paul tell the Philippians? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're first and foremost citizens of heaven. But as also citizens of this earth, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Verse 11 begins the context. This is the backdrop of what Peter's going to say in verse 13 when he says, submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human institution. Obedience to government is part of spiritual warfare. Did you ever think about that? Our obedience to government, even doing our tax return, okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There's spiritual warfare there. Have you, ever, have you ever felt the pull not to report something on there that you have to pay taxes on? If you have, you're no different than probably virtually everyone here. At some point, there's the temptation not to put something down. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. In the context, this fleshly lust, we're going to see when we get to verse 13, is to not submit to governing authorities at all levels. That's all part of spiritual warfare. View our submission to government going forward as part of spiritual warfare. Secondly, obedience to government is a testimony for God. You want to testify of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to others? Peter says, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, amongst the unsaved, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, oh, you're one of those Christians, they may because of your good deeds. What good deeds? The very first word of verse 13, we'll see that, submit. Because of your good deeds, as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Day of visitation is a Jewish concept. Now, I capitalize day in visitation. It's not clear if they should be. In Jewish theology from the Old Testament, the day of visitation is when God would arrive and pass judgment. Not necessarily in the future, but even judgment on a nation in history because of their evil. Even a judgment on Israel 
because of their rebellion against the Lord. So it could be any time of judgment or a time of blessing. It could be a time when God visits someone with salvation because of your good deeds, because of seeing the believer submit to onerous, to harsh government rules and regulations that the unbeliever also doesn't want any part of. Yet the Christian obeys. When they observe those good deeds, they will glorify God in the day of their visitation. It could be that. It's not clear. Bible scholars are divided whether this is talking about when Peter wrote the second coming of Christ to judge the world and set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years or whether it's an individual personal visitation of salvation. It, it doesn't matter too much to the point that we're making. Our obedience to government, when they do not go beyond the limits of their authority, when government stays where it should and doesn't get into God's business, is a testimony for God. Obedience to government is commanded. Submit. That is a command, both in the original Greek language and in the English. In fact, Peter used a word that was a military term. It means to line up in orderly fashion behind or under. See, the way a Roman legion, three to 6,000 men, normally six, but often warfare, they lost people in combat, and they could have as little as 3,000. But they would normally have uh, the, the, um, the tribune, the head of the legion, he'd be on his white horse, and he'd be facing his legion. And the legion would be divided into thousands. And in front of each thousand would be what was called a kiliarch. Kilia is a thousand in Greek. He would be a commander of a thousand. He'd be before a thousand. And behind him, in groups of hundreds, would be other men, headed by a centurion, a commander of a hundred. And then the the Kiliarch, the commander of a thousand, and the tribune, the head. And everybody lined up in orderly fashion. When the, when the tribune gave the order, the Kiliarchs repeated it, the centurions repeated it to each hundred men, and they obeyed that order. That's what the word submit means. That's the context. It's a military term. When the head authority speaks, everybody follows. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. It's what he just said. They will glorify God in the day of visitation. Our obedience, our submission to government authorities when they do not go outside that sphere of their authority and command and instruct evil or forbid the doing of good. This is what's commanded of us, and it's for the Lord's sake. It's not simply for their own sake. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors. Paul puts it this way, that obedience to government is expected. God gave the command. He expects it to be followed. Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. There's no other option in Paul's mind. It's commanded. 
And so this is the way it ought to be for the believer in Christ. Obedience to government is necessary. Paul says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. There are no exceptions to obedience to government. Every person, it's not like you all have to be obedient to government, but I don't. I get to not be in obedient to government. No, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Obedience to government even involves God's provision. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, Moses reminds the Jewish people of this. And it's a good reminder to you and I as well. It is the Lord your God who gives you the power to make wealth. God is the one who has given us the ability to make whatever measure of wealth each of us has. He doesn't give us more than we can handle. He doesn't give us less. He knows what each one of us needs at any point in time. He provides it. A hundred percent of it is his. He just allows us to keep some of it to use for ourselves. Obedience to government even involves what God provides. We can't say, oh, no, 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 God provided this. I'm not giving it to the government. I'm not paying taxes. He says, you also pay taxes. Why? For rulers are servants of God. Because government is really to serve God in some fashion. Jesus made this very, very clear when the Pharisees and Herodians came to test him. Shall we pay tax or not? Jesus said, bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one whose likeness and inscription is this. They said Caesar's. And what did Jesus say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You know, there's a, a dear brother. I, I knew him for a little over 40 years before he went home to be with the Lord. And he was a good brother, but somewhere along the line, he got messed up in the sovereign citizen movement, thinking that he was sovereign and the government had no authority over him. He ignored all these plain scriptures. He didn't pay taxes. He lost his house, didn't make his wife very happy. He, he wouldn't register his car. In fact, he made up a phony license plate with a Bible verse, the reference on it. He came out one day and it was towed. You know, you know I tried to talk to this brother. You know, these scriptures are so plain. But if one has the sin agreed in their heart, the sin of pride, where they're going to place themselves above the clear teaching of Scripture, then God uses, as we'll see soon, government to be an avenger, to chastise those who do evil. Obedience to government involves more than just paying taxes. Paul writes, render to all what is due to them. And then he specifies what the what is. Tax to whom tax is owed, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and most of all, honor to whom honor is due. Peter says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. Now, we've learned in the years past since I've been here that fear of God is a Jewish concept, and all it means is obedience to God. 
It's not reverential awe as is commonly taught. I showed you multiple Bible verses that made it abundantly clear. So fear God is obedience to God. Honor all people, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, obey God, and honor the king. Obedience to government involves prayer, as our brother Mike Browner was telling us this morning. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men. Well, who are the all men? It's not just everybody in the world. Lord, bless everybody. I mean, that's the best we could do if you're talking about 7 billion people. No, the all men in the context are, is found in verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority. Paul's telling Timothy, look, tell the church. Don't just pray for your fellow slaves. Don't just pray for your fellow tradesmen. Don't just pray for your fellow business owners. Pray even for the kings. And Nero was the king, was the emperor at this time. Pray for kings and all who are in authority. For what purpose? Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The focus of our prayers for our governing, governing authorities is not merely that they leave us alone and they let us do what we want. It's not merely for a quiet and peaceable life. It's for a quiet and peaceable life so that we can devote ourselves to godliness and worship, reverence. What are the benefits of obedience to government? For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do, uh, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from them. I worked with a guy who once shared with me that he cheated on his income tax, and he was worried. It was like he was constantly looking over his shoulder, figuratively, he told me, that the IRS was going to catch up with him. Now, this was, you know, almost 40 years ago, so I'm sure saying this, the IRS isn't going to come. Hey, who was that person? In fact, I can't even remember who it was. I just know I worked with him. So, you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. There's benefits to obedience to government. What are the consequences of disobedience to government? Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. You're not just, when we disobey government, when they are operating within their proper sphere of goodness, if we disobey them, we're not just resisting them, but we're opposed to what God has ordained. We are Opposing God. Condemnation is a consequence of disobedience. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, this is not eternal condemnation. This is not condemnation from God. If we read the very next verse, verse 3, which we will, we'll see that it's condemnation from the governing authorities. They're going to come after us when we disobey. For rulers, here's the very next, next verse. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. Fear is a consequence of disobedience. Punishment is a consequence of disobedience. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, the government, does not bear the sword. That's pretty graphic. 
They don't come after us with swords right now to hack us to pieces, but that's pretty graphic. They have the power to enforce their laws, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on those who practice evil. Keep in mind there, practice evil. Government should bring the sword and be an avenger and bring wrath upon those who practice evil. Punishment is a consequence of disobedience. Peter says the same thing that Paul said. He said in verse 13, Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now, for me as a believer in Christ, this is the most important one of all. God forbid that any true believer in Christ is more concerned about temporal punishment in jail or a prison, more concerned about fines and penalties than a guilty conscience before God. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. That same military term, line up in orderly fashion behind the government when it operates within that sphere of good. It's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but what the government can do to you temporally, do to me temporally, but for conscience sake. You see, what we've been talking about appears to be largely horizontal. What's around us in the world? But there's a spiritual, a vertical component to it because of conscience sake, because of conscience sake before the Lord. The human government doesn't know our conscience. They can't see our conscience, but God knows our conscience. We know when we violated our conscience. But nobody will know. Yes, two people know, God and you, or God and I. This, is the, this is, should be more of a concern to us that we violate our conscience in trying to disobey government and hopefully not get caught, the violation of our conscience would weigh more heavily upon us. We are basically going against the one who, as we sung, purchased salvation at such a great cost. What kind of gratitude and appreciation do we show to him when we're willing to have a guilty conscience in anything? even in obedience to government. So this morning, what are you thinking? Are you thinking biblically about you as a believer, you as a Christian, and your relationship to government? Are you thinking biblically? Let's pray. Let's close in prayer and think about this verse. Oh, Lord, uh, you have taught us well from your own words and from uh, via your Holy Spirit as well. Oh, dear God, would you impress upon us the importance of rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but oh, dear God, even more, help us each day, each moment of, moment of each day to render to you the things that are yours. Most of all, dear God, we belong to you. Help us in every situation and circumstance to render ourselves to you. 
which is what we ought to do. We ask all this for your glory and your name's sake. Amen. You're dismissed.